That's one good thing about being in both services. Get to hear that twice. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, which will be our uh, launching place as we're going to look at Andrew and James this morning in our series on the Apostles. And as you're finding that text, let me just ask you a question. If Jesus appeared to you, you know, in his kingdom glory, kind of like he did uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and told you that he wanted you to die for him, and that he would supply you, of course, with all the needed grace, would you be willing to do that? Think about that. Well, I have news for you. He already asked. He already asked. He said, if you aren't willing to take up your cross, which of course was an instrument of torture and death, and follow him, you cannot be his disciple. The phrase, take up your cross, means to die to self, die to what you want to do, die to your wicked ways, and maybe even be willing to be a martyr for Christ. Remember, it was Jesus who tells us in Luke 9, 24, whoever loses their life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And later in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. He says, but I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who after He has killed the body, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We are to have a holy fear for God, a fear that is so great, it allows us or motivates us to suffer lesser things than hell. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be put into a position where it was either Deny Christ or die. Just sign this piece of paper saying, I reject Jesus Christ as my Savior or die. Do you think he would pass the test? Do you think if they said, either deny Christ or we're going to kill these five other people, your friends, then do you think he would deny him? What if they said, I'm going to kill your children if you don't deny Christ? Would you deny Christ then? Would you be willing to give up all of your possessions and be sent to jail to pine away for years in prison when any moment all you would have to do is deny Christ and they would let you out? You know, many have done that in the past, given their lives for Christ, and many are still doing it today. This is not something that is uncommon in the world. Of course, it's something uncommon that the secular media reports on, but it is not uncommon. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably most of us feel like, you know, we might cave in or we we have no idea. We live in such different circumstances from life or death for Jesus that that we he might be out there thinking, I don't know if I do that. I don't know if I could do that. But you know what's encouraging? When the time comes, God's grace will come upon you like a flood and you will be able to walk through the fire. And many people have. And many people are doing it today. You will be like Perpetua, one of the 
early martyrs of the church, a young, modest, married woman who was nursing an infant. And she would not offer sacrifice to the pagan deities. And so they arrested her and took her and threw her into the dungeon, separating her from her baby. Those who came to see her in prison pleaded with her, just offer a little pinch of incense to the pagan god and they'll let you go. And she replied, the dungeon is to me a palace. Again, she was brought before the ruler, Hilarianus, and given an opportunity to go free if she would only offer a small token of sacrifice to a pagan deity. But she refused. Her father then came with her crying baby, held her baby up to her, and said, please, please, sacrifice to the pagan deities so you can be set free. And she said, I will not sacrifice. So she was sentenced to be torn apart by wild beasts at the next pagan holiday. When the day of her execution came, she was stripped naked and hung into a net to be humiliated by the crowd. And the crowd objected, so she was cut down, taken back, clothed, and finally brought out into the arena, placed in the middle, and an enraged bull was released to tear her to pieces the bull charged her threw around a little bit but amazingly she was unhurt and she was more concerned with her modesty as the bull had torn some of her clothing than of the bull itself strangely the bull refused to attack her anymore and just circled in a rage but never came closer So she was removed from the arena a second time, only to appear later to be executed by the gladiators. And yet the gladiator who was assigned to kill her approached her and he began to tremble so violently and became so weak he could barely even jab at her. So he, she grabbed his sword and put it up to her chest so he could run her through. She was mortally wounded and died. Now, does that sound like ancient history to you? Does that sound otherworldly? I think sometimes we come and we think, yeah, that used to happen a long time ago. You need to hear the testimony sometime of Dr. Wong, one of the professors at the Master's College who grew up in a Chinese Christian home. His parents were taken away when he was young. But all growing up, his parents told him, you never deny Christ. You never deny Christ. You never deny Christ. And so his parents were taken away for being Christians. The authorities took him, I think he was about 12, and his younger brother about 10, into a room. And they said, we want you to deny Christ. And he said, no. And they said, okay, if you don't deny Christ, we're going to beat your brother. And he said, I'm not going to deny the Lord. And so they beat his brother to death in front of his eyes. And he teaches now at the master's college. And I tell you this because a lot of times we think that persecution and suffering and all of this stuff is just, you know, some other thing and some other place and some other world and time that is not our own. But I just want you to know it could get that way very quick in this country. And I'm not trying to make you feel sad or depressed or, you know, make you feel all bummed out. 
I just want you to snap out of it. What do I mean by it? By your spiritual slumber. By thinking that, you know, Christianity is about getting what you want and having things your way and, and making God into your own image and just, you know, having fun. You know, we come to a place like this and we got soft, squishy pews and climate control and we're all showered. At least hopefully we are. And, you know, we have donuts and coffee outside. You come to church and hear some good songs and chat with your favorite people and, you know, go to your favorite restaurant afterwards or whatever. And you can, you think, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. This is what it's like. Well, that's not like this for a lot of people around the world today who are dying and suffering and being tortured for the cause of Christ, just like the people in the early church. There's one thing that's certain, and that is the apostles, they all died too. You know, a lot of times we think that Jesus died to save us, and he did. I mean, it's his blood that atones for our sins. It's his death and his resurrection which saves us in an ultimate sense. But what you need to realize is thousands of people have died so you can be saved. Not just Jesus. Thousands of people have given their lives, sacrificed themselves so you could know the truth, so you could be saved, so you could escape the wrath of God to come. And that's the only reason why you're a Christian today. And as we look at the apostles, I want you to realize that as we study their examples, that all these men gave their lives for you so you could know Jesus. And hopefully that will make you a little bit more interested in their stories and make you a little more desirous to follow after them in their footsteps. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And as we look at Luke 6, 12, we're going to read down through most of 14. And this is what we read. And it was at this time that he, Jesus, went off to a mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also named Apostle Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James. Now, just stop there. We've already looked at Peter in some detail. Now we're going to look at Andrew and James. And from the lives of these two men, I want to encourage you, I want to motivate you to strive for two godly characteristics which we learn from them that Christ wants all of us to have so we can be a proper witness for him in the world. And the first is this, you need to bring others to Christ like Andrew. The second name we come to in Luke 6:14 after Peter is Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. Um, he is one of the sons of Jonas or John, uh, who is a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. The name Andrew means manly. And in John chapter 1, verse 43, it tells us that Andrew and Peter grew up in Bethsaida of Galilee. John says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida, if you can picture the Sea of Galilee in your mind, and the Jordan River flows in kind of off-center to the right um, of the north shore, uh, it would be uh, east of the Jordan River near the shore somewhere. Archaeologists are a little disagreed about it, but it's in there somewhere. And uh, Bethsaida means house of fishing in Aramaic. And so they grew up in the house of fishing. And of course, if you remember, uh, Andrew and 
Peter were the sons of John or Jonas and and then James and John were the sons of Zebedee. And so Zebedee and Jonas or John were in partnership together and their four sons fished with them in the Sea of Galilee. And we read in Matthew 4.18, for instance, that uh, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So we know that they were fishermen. We know they plied their trade in the Sea of Galilee. And we know that um, Andrew was uh, this probably younger brother, Peter. Now, later, according to Mark 129, Andrew uh, and Peter moved to Capernaum. We don't know the circumstances about that, but we do know this. Andrew seems to have a great interest in learning about the Messiah. He is interested in the Messiah. We know this because, uh, remember, John was baptizing people in the Jordan River east of Jerusalem, about uh, you know 20 miles, 30 miles south of, of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And apparently Andrew heard about John the Baptist and that there was this guy in coarse clothing baptizing people crying, you know, repent for the kingdom of uh, heaven is at hand and the Messiah is coming and all of these things. And so he must have went down there, heard John, believed John, been baptized by John, and he was convinced that the Messiah was coming. And if you turn to John chapter 1. We want to turn there, John chapter 1, verses 35. We learn a little bit more about Andrew. And in John 1, 35, we read, And the next day John was standing, that's John the Baptist, with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and wa- as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So, so John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples, they aren't named yet, and he sees Jesus and he points Jesus out to these two disciples and says, There he is, guys. The Lamb of God. This is the guy that I am preparing the way for. This is the guy who is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And, verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew heard from John the Baptist that the Messiah was coming, and then Andrew heard from John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was obviously convinced of that. We know this from John chapter forty one, verse 41, right after the text we just read, where... John goes on to tell us, he, that is Andrew, found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter or which means rock. And so from the very beginning, we see something interesting. Andrew bringing his brother to Jesus. 
Of course, later was Andrew was called to follow Christ as one of his disciples and eventually was called to be an apostle, as Luke 6 tells us. And remember, the difference between the disciple and apostle is this. A disciple is a learner, a student. When you are a disciple of somebody, it just means you are a student, a learner. And a disciple of somebody would be kind of somebody who hung around and just learned from a rabbi or a teacher. And so Jesus first called um, Andrew to be a disciple and then later on called him to be an apostle. An apostle is a whole different thing in a New Testament sense. In a biblical sense, an apostle is one sent with authority and power to do the works of an apostle and to proclaim the gospel. And so that's what Andrew became. It was Andrew... In John 6, 8 through 9, who before the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 found a young boy with fish and barley loaves and said, hey, come on, I want to introduce you to Jesus. And it was Andrew who introduced some Greeks. Uh, Philip, uh, who many think may have been a Greek because of his name, um, Philip had some Greek friends uh, or met some Greeks or something. Anyways, he had these Greeks and he said, you need to meet Jesus. Let me take you to the guy who will... Take you to Jesus. And so he brought these Greeks to Andrew and Andrew said, sure, I'll introduce you to Jesus. And so we see him again. Now, what's interesting is there's hardly the scriptures hardly say anything else about Andrew, except that uh, um, in this sermon, uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, like in Mark 13, three and four, he was there with the other inner circle of the apostles asking Jesus about the signs of Jesus coming in the end of the age. But pretty much the three instances we we hear about him in the Gospels are um, he's leading Peter, the Lord, he's leading the young boy to the Lord and he's eating the Greeks to the Lord. So guess what we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about Andrew, the one who leads people to Christ. Now, early church father Eusebius tells us that Andrew took the gospel far north um, to the area north of the Black Sea, uh, north and northeast of the Black Sea, to preach the gospel to some of the most difficult people, um, the Scythians, a very barbaric people up there. And this is why he is the patron saint of both Russia and Scotland. You go to Scotland and, you know, Russia, and there are towns and schools and golf courses named after um, Andrew, St. Andrews. uh, And that is why, because he is the patron, patron saint of Russia and Scotland. Supposedly, he died in Achaia in southern Greece by crucifixion. Uh, one legend says he led the wife of a very influential um, uh, Roman uh, governor to Christ. The governor then found out, told his wife to recant. She would not. So he said, if you don't recant, I'm going to kill the guy who led you to Christ. She says, I will not recant. He went to Peter. Um, he wouldn't tell her to recant or, or Andrew, mind you. Andrew wouldn't um, tell her to recant. And so he said, OK, you are going to be crucified on a special cross. It's a cross shaped like an X rather than a normal cross, which kind of stretches you out. And I'm not going to use any nails. I'm going to lash you to the cross. You die slowly. And that X-shaped cross is called a saltire, now known as St. Andrew's cross. And it was on that cross that Andrew pined away for several days. But while he was on the cross, he kept preaching the gospel to all who came by. Eventually, his spirit went to be with the Lord and his body died. And as we look at the life of Andrew, the character that stands out is Andrew led people to Christ. That was something he was 
passionate about. And you know what? It's something every one of us should be passionate about. It's clear that Andrew was not afraid to bring people to Jesus, to tell others, I have found the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one whom the prophets spoke about. And you know, we all need to bring other people to Christ and not be afraid. The Great Commission is for everyone to make disciples. And how do you make disciples? By sharing the gospel with them. It's the only way to make disciples, to share the gospel with them, to tell them that they are sinners, to explain God's judgment, to explain the solution of judgment. That is how to escape the wrath of God. You talk about Christ and who he is, what he did, his life, his death on the cross, his atonement for sin. And that they need to place their faith in him in order to be saved and transformed into a new creature. Jesus in Matthew 10:33 lets us know, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Luke chapter 12 verses 8 and 9, a parallel text, a little different wording, reads Jesus speaking, and I said to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now you put those two texts together. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You add that to the great commission. It's really clear. You need to profess Christ before men. You say, well, well, how do I do that? Well, there's basically three ways. One way is by living according to the word of God, by living in holiness in an ungodly world. By your actions, you tell people who Christ is. He is holy. He is your king. Secondly, you confess Christ by telling other people, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. I love the Lord. And third, you confess Christ by sharing the gospel with people. And telling them how they too can know Christ. This is how you profess Christ. You don't do that. You will be denied before the Father and the holy angels. That's what the scriptures say. And then you will go to hell. Now when you look back at your life. Are you sharing Christ with people? You need to do this. It's what it means to be a Christian. Now, how would the families and friends of those who have died from AIDS and cancer feel if after years and years it was discovered that you had the cure for AIDS and cancer and yet you didn't tell anybody because you didn't want to hassle with all the publicity? Do you think people would get angry at you? Do you think they would have a right to get angry with you? When you had the cure to their fatal disease and you could have given them temporary life? Well, the Bible says that everyone's born with a worse disease than cancer or AIDS. It's sin. And it not only kills people physically, it kills people eternally. Every Christian has been Cured from the eternal consequences 
of soul damning sin through faith in Christ. And there are billions today, billions, no hyperbole, who walk the earth most totally unaware that they are infected by the soul damning disease of sin and that judgment is coming. And you have the cure. You have the cure. You're one of the small groups of people who have a cure. You know, there are a lot of churches out there, but most churches don't encourage people to share their faith. We are you hearing it? You have the cure. Now, you know, you can go to somebody and you can, you know, offer them the cure. And if they don't want it, that's okay. You know, that's not your problem. They don't want to take the medicine. They don't get better. You share the gospel with somebody, they don't want it, that's okay. But you need to at least give it to them. You need to at least offer the cure. You know, you think back in Christian history at people, there are so many, you know, incredible godly men and women. You know, you think of people like Augustine and Chrysostom and, you know, John Calvin and Thomas Watson and John Owen and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley and Charles Spurgeon and G. Campbell Morgan and Alexander McLaren and Jonathan Edwards and just on and on. These incredible preachers who just led thousands and thousands to Christ. And you know what? You look at your life and go, well, that's not me. But you know what? Who led them to the Lord? Somebody did. Somebody led those people to the Lord. And then they became incredible instruments in the hands of God to reach others. And they might be in your fourth grade or four-year-old Sunday school class or in junior high group or in the college ministry. They might be any one of those people. They might be right here. They might be sitting next to you. They might not know the Lord. And you know, we look at these people and we say, well, I, you know, I don't know who led them to the Lord. Well, I don't know either. They're obscure. We don't even know. I'm sure that some people came to the Lord because they, they read their Bible or read a book or a track and, you know, they came to the Lord. But most of those people had somebody share the gospel with them. And that's why they came to the Lord. Some grandmother, some shoe cobbler in a shop, some buddy somewhere, some woman washing clothes sees some little boy squirreling around, says, come here, I want to tell you something, shares the gospel, and that little boy grows up to be the weapon of God. And you look around you right now, you look in all these pews here, most of these people, I imagine, are saved. Who led you to the Lord? Who led them to the Lord? Somebody did. And again, you know, even if you say, well, you know, nobody really led me to the Lord. I got a Bible and, you know, I read it and I understood the gospel and I became saved. Well, let me ask you this. Where'd you get that Bible? The Gideons? Where'd you get that Bible from the Christian bookstore? Who translated that Bible from Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek into English so you could read it? How many thousands in the history of Christianity died so you could have that Bible? I'm telling you more than you could count. People died for you. They died so you could be saved. Not just Jesus. Thousands of people gave their lives so that you could know the truth. Even if you come to the Lord 
By reading a Bible, remember, somebody died to get you that Bible. Lots of people did. And again, I'm not trying to lay some guilt trip on you. I'm just telling you the facts here. This is reality. This is Christian history. Those who deny Christ are denied before the Father and the holy angels. So you need to think back to last month, last year, and ask yourself, am I telling people about Jesus or not? And if you aren't, the question is, why not? If you realize that you have been sidetracked from God's primary purpose for your life here on earth, you need to get on track again. You know what? You can worship better in heaven. You can learn truth better in heaven. You will be sanctified perfectly in heaven. There is one thing you can't do in heaven, and that's share the gospel with other people. It is the task for the church here on earth. And if you know Christ, you're part of that church. You're part of that task. It is the Great Commission. Realize that you can share the gospel, though, in a lot of different ways. You know, I'm not saying that we all need to take some course, you know, and memorize, you know, 70 Bible verses. And listen, let me just give you some ways you can bring people to Christ. One way is you invite them to church. Now, if you invite them on the right day, they'll hear the gospel for sure. But if you're here for, you know, a couple days, if they come for a couple Sundays, chances are they're going to hear the gospel because we preach it all the time here. That's one way. Many multitudes have come to the Lord sitting in church. And you know what? There's all kinds of examples of people who have been brought by friends. And, you know, you're out there right now where somebody invited you to church and you were kind of skeptical and thought, you know, you know, come to this church thing and see what it's like. And you came and thought, this is interesting. And God began to draw you and you got more interested and God began to draw you more. And you became more and more interested. And pretty soon you realized you were a sinner, that Christ died for your sins. They need to repent and give your life to Christ. And you did and you were changed. And here you are. You're still here. That's one way. Secondly, you can give people a Bible or a book or a pamphlet that shares the gospel. And in these first two ways, you don't even know, and you don't need to know anything. Here, read this. A lot of people have come to the Lord, you know, picking up some obscure pamphlet off the street or, you know, some guy handing out something or, you know, they just, they find something. They pick up a Gideon's Bible or whatever. They, they just read something somewhere and they find Christ and the pages of scripture and the pages of some little booklet or gospel tract. That's another way. The third way, the way that you're commanded. Those other ways are optional is you learn how to share the gospel with other people. You learn how to do it. Don't just say, well, I'll you know, bring them to church and the professional will get them. I will, but you get them before you bring them. And you know, if you're out there and you're saying, well, I don't know the gospel, well, then you need to be saved. You can't be saved if you don't know the gospel. You realize that, right? Coming to church and calling yourself a Christian does not save you. Asking Jesus in your heart does not save you. You become a Christian by placing your faith in a certain person who, because of your sin, And his holiness and justice and love died in your place on the cross so that you through faith in him might receive his righteousness as he would take your sin and make a substitution there. And believing that he rose from the dead for your salvation to show you that he could conquer death because he was sinless. 
And if you're out there and you're realizing, you know, I, I just, I don't know the gospel, then you don't know Jesus because there's only one way to know Jesus, and that's to know the gospel. Now, if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, well, I know the gospel, and, you know, maybe I could take you into my office, give you a big quiz, and you would get 100%. But you're just not good at telling other people, you know? As soon as you start talking, you know how it is. Your heart starts racing. Let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, you've been there. I mean, I still get excited. My my hands get sweaty just talking about it, man. Yeah. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay that you're learning how, as long as you're practicing. I don't know if you've ever been into an art gallery and you've seen some watercolors, you know, those watercolor paintings. Those always amaze me. You know why they amaze me? Because if you paint with, you know, oils, you can, you can paint a whole picture, and if you mess up, you just paint over the top of it. Like the famous blue boy painting where you look at the painting and here's this boy in this, you know, nice blue coat. But then when they check it with ultraviolet, there's a, I think a, uh, a boy under that with a red coat and a dog next to him. The guy messed up, so he painted over the top. And you know, that's cool with oil, but not with watercolors. One chance, baby, and that's it. And if you've ever seen some detailed watercolors where you have ships with mass and little tiny lines, and I don't know if you've ever tried, but, you know, it just runs everywhere. You get these big globs and flows, and you're just thinking, oh, oh. And people who are good at it, I'm telling you, they didn't become good at painting with watercolors by merely wishing they were good at painting with watercolors. They made a lot of ugly pictures. They messed up a lot of paper. To get to the place where they could paint something that was decent. And I want you to know, sharing the gospel is no different, and you just gotta do it. And yeah, you have some ugly gospel presentations at first. So what? At least you're saying something. I want you to know, a lot of people have been saved by very short, contrite gospel presentations like, you know, repent and believe in Jesus. Who died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day and people have believed and been saved, you know? God can even use a, a basic, very short, truncated one. But at least tell him something. At least tell him something. A while back, Jim Stone and I were flying up to Sacramento and, you know, I was reading some theology book on Paul and the law and, and this waitress, waitress came by or a stewardess or whatever, the flight attendant. And, uh, she came by and asked me if uh, if I want anything to drink. I said, no. And then I asked her, but do you have any Bible questions? <laughs> you know, I thought this would be good because she wanted to know about my book, Paul and the Law. And uh, she pointed at me and said, I'll be back. So, okay. So she went and, did, and it was kind of a, you know, a sparse flight. And so we're sitting there and. And so we're chatting with her a little bit. Jim's chatting with her. I'm chatting with her. And finally, I just realized, you know, time's running out here. And what you really need to know is that everyone's a sinner. Now, meanwhile, all these businessmen are sitting around and she's sitting across the aisle. And so I just raise my voice a little bit, which I always do when I get excited. (laughs) Say, you know, the, the basic thing is you need to know you're a sinner that God judges sinners, and the only way you can escape God's judgment is to place your faith. And so I explained the gospel, and I just get it out there, you know. No, hey, you know, she didn't fall in the aisle and repent and cry and give her life to Christ. <laughs> but I just want you to know, I'm not responsible to save anybody, and you're not responsible to save anybody. 
Don't take upon yourself the thought that you've got to share the gospel just right. And if you don't, people won't get saved. That's just not how it is. No, you just share the gospel and even a lousy presentation God can use. And just trust God. Listen, you can't make them take the cure. You can only offer the cure. So you offer them the cure, let God make them take the cure. And sometimes, you know, he puts you in a headlock and force feeds you. Some bad circumstances. But I'm telling you, you share the gospel a lot, you're going to be good at, good at sharing the gospel. But if you let, you know, some fear of men into the mix, come into the mix and add a little cowardliness there, and a pinch of self-consciousness and a half cup of self-preservation, stir in some worry, bake it in the oven of anxiety, and you know what you're going to have? A never share the gospel pie. Because you're more concerned about other people and yourself and whatever, rather than God. And what he wants for your life, which is for you personally, as a Christian, you are commanded to share the gospel with others. And if you don't, Jesus says, you're going to the lake of fire. Motivation. And the elders realize this. We realize that people have insecurities. Some of you are young in the Lord. Some of you have never shared your faith. Some of you are scared. Some of you are not very good speakers. We know this, and that's why we have Dave Hintz. Dave Hintz is our solution for you. And he offers class. And just go talk to him. And as soon as he gets a couple people who are interested, he holds a class. He'll show you how to, how to give your testimony, how to share the gospel, how to bring up the conversation, how to deal with, you know, differing degrees. He has an advanced class when, you know, you're dealing with the, this cult person or that cult person. You know, he can tell you books. He can give you, show you how to take somebody through a gospel track. I mean, you know, we're ready. We're here for you. We want, we, we want to help you succeed. And so we learn from the life of Andrew that every one of us needs to be part of confessing Christ before men and leading people to Jesus. Because everybody is infected with soul-damning sin. And we have the cure. And so we need to give the cure to the world. Secondly, we must be willing to suffer for Christ like James. When you study up on James, you need to make sure you have the correct James, of course, under the microscope. There's several of them. James, there's James, the son of Zebedee. He's the guy we're, we're going to be looking at here in a minute. And the brother of John. And secondly, there's James, the son of Alphaeus. He is also, he's another one of the apostles, one of the lesser apostles. As a matter of fact, he's called James the Less, and then the other one's called, you know, James the Greater. And then there is James, the father of the apostle Judas, not Judas Iscariot. It just mentions that the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot's father's name was James. So he's mentioned in the, in the New Testament. Then there is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became leader of the church at Jerusalem and wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament. And so let's just talk about James, the son of Zebedee, and learn why He is such a great example of suffering for Christ. Well, again, James is one of the inner four. Actually, there's even a closer group, kind of like the inner three. Sometimes Andrew gets left out. And we see James leaving his fishing trade in Mark chapter 1, verse 20. Later on, he's called to be a disciple, Mark or Matthew 4, 21. And after that, to be an apostle, as our text says. Same thing with the other ones we've talked about so far. And they are in the close circle. 
Jesus takes certain men. He calls 12, but he, he kind of caters to four and specifically three in that group. And James is one of them. For instance, uh, it was Peter, James, and John, according to Mark 5.37, who got to see Jairus raised from the dead, and only them. In Matthew 17.1, only Peter, James, and John were invited to witness the transformed kingdom glory of Christ up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Later on, when Jesus was in the garden, Jesus pulled aside Peter, James, and John to watch and pray as he agonized in the garden before his crucifixion. And James must have been a very loud, outspoken individual. Maybe even more than Peter, we don't know for certain. But Jesus gave James and John, the two brothers, uh, sons of Zebedee, the nickname Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. That ought to describe something, huh? And when you look through the Gospels, you find out that they were loud and impetuous and prideful and power hungry, which is kind of encouraging. You know, here we are. God's working with us. Well, you know what? The apostles are the same. They're just ordinary sinners like all of us. For instance, in John or in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37, James and John asked Jesus for a favor. Turn there. Turn to Matthew um, or Mark, rather, chapter 10. I don't know if I said Matthew before. I got so many scriptures. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. And they, they, they want to ask Jesus for a favor. And this is a, this is, a, these are stunning words. Mark 10, 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Now, doesn't that just bother you? <laughs> you, What? No, 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 no. Jesus is the master. You are the servant. Jesus tells you what to do. You don't tell him. You know, they got, let's say, do whatever we want. Obviously, they're convinced Jesus has power. He's doing miracles. And they're going, hey, you know, if he's got this much power, let's ask him to do whatever we want. Is that self-serving? Ah. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And look at this request. And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Whoa! Jesus, when you're exalted, we want to have the right and left hand seats next to the throne of God Almighty. Okay? And what makes these words even more amazing is that in the preceding context, Jesus told them he was going to be tried by the Gentiles, condemned, mocked, spat upon, scourged, killed, and three days later rise from the dead, and they just totally ignore that. I mean, oh, well. You know, Jesus is going to be condemned, but hey, man, we're looking for some power here. We're looking for position. That gives you hope for yourself, doesn't it? I know it gives me hope. James seems to be so unsympathetic, so brash, so brazen and self-serving that all he is concerned about is, teacher, we want to know if you will do whatever we want you to do for us. It just, I don't know about you, it makes me cringe, it makes me wish I could just go back and just say, hey, 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 
Don't ask him that question. I mean, you don't know how long this is going to be in the Bible. People are going to be reading about this one for a long time, man. Do not go there. But it shows that they were just sinners like the rest of us. And that's not the end of it. Right after that, if you look in verse 38, after they asked for the two greatest places of honor, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Oh, sure. They didn't even know what he was talking about. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Sorry, reservations have been made and I'm not telling you who gets to gets the spot. The amazing thing here is is that these men didn't even know that Jesus was talking about crucifixion. And they're saying, hey, listen, we'll do whatever you want as long as we can get the power, as long as we can get the position. So Jesus says, okay, guess what? You're going to be crucified. But if you want to know who gets the those seats, sorry. There's reservations already made, and I'm not telling you. Another example of the sons of thunder is in Luke 9. You know, turn there, Luke 9, verse 51. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. He's headed towards Jerusalem, and he passes through, of all places, Samaria. Jews never passed through Samaria because Samaritans had bad cooties. I mean, they were enemies. And what, what the Jews would do is they'd go east, cross the Jordan, go up the other side of the Jordan, and cross over if they wanted to go to Galilee or from Galilee to Jerusalem, go down to the Jordan, walk down, you know, in the sweltering hot desert floor of the Jordan Rift, and then they would hike up the hill just so they wouldn't have to set foot on Samaritan soil. They would walk 40 miles out of their way. And the reason for this is the Jews and Samaritans had conflicts going back some 500 years. But here Jesus is, he's going through the forbidden zone. And you know, his apostles are probably thinking to himself, man, what are we doing here? I mean, we're, you know, we're right in the middle of Samaria. I've never come to Samaria. And these guys, you know, they worship on Gerizim, you know, and they don't worship in Jerusalem. Why are we even going through here? And so Jesus knows what he's doing. He tells some of his apostles, yeah, why don't you go ahead, tell them your master's coming. And what we would like is some hospitality extended to us as we pass through. And so, apparently they did. They went through, and of course the Samaritans would look at them and immediately say, oh, some Jews. And the Samaritans must have asked, so, how long are you going to be here? Where are you headed? Well, we're on our way to Jerusalem. Heretics! You remember the woman at the well? Our people say that Gerizim is the place where we should worship. But your people say Jerusalem. That was the big deal. They had taken Jerusalem and rejected it because... They wouldn't give them a a part in building the temple. They set up worship in Gerizim, distorted Judaism, and made this false cultic religion, and they hated each other. And as soon as they find out, listen, you're going to Jerusalem, you're a heretic, man. We aren't going to serve you. We aren't going to serve your master. You can just tell them to pack it. And you know what? Was Jesus ever rejected at any other time? 
Sure. Sure. You remember, we just learned in Luke 5 how he went to his hometown and said, hey, I'm here. See this prophecy in Isaiah about the Messiah? That's me. They tried to kill him and throw him off a cliff. That's being rejected, isn't it? Yeah, he was rejected. He was rejected at other times too. And the apostles accepted that. But look how they respond in verse 54 in this certain Samaritan village. Now, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Take it easy, guys. Take it easy. All right. And you know where they got that from, right? They got it from Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, where Elijah is speaking um, to this captain who has been sent to him by the wicked king along with 50 armed guards to try and manipulate him and encourage him, uh, encourage him, force him to do the king's bidding. And Elijah says, up, oh, fire's coming down and poof, they got consumed. So the king sends 50 more and another captain, they get consumed. Then finally the third batch of 50 and the third captain comes and goes, please, please don't consume us with fire. And he says, okay, I'll go with you. Man, they wanted some of that Elijah-wielding napalm power. <laughs> they were power-hungry, man. They were, they were ready to just see those Samaritans smoked off. They had probably been raised from an early age to despise them. And as soon as the Samaritans said, we aren't helping you, Lord, can we have fire come down? Can we have a roast? They wanted to get them. And so now you know why they're called the sons of thunder. But you know, James's greatest act is not recorded in the Gospels. It's recorded in Acts 12. Turn there. Acts chapter 12. Of course, Luke wrote the book of Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke. And in Acts chapter 12, we come to James's greatest act on behalf of the Lord. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And that was the end of James. Is it? This is the last mention of James. He's always mentioned with his brother, John. This is the last time they're mentioned together because this is the end of the line for him. He's the oldest. He's probably the most outspoken. So they took off his head. He was the first apostle to be martyred, probably somewhere around 43 AD. He is the only apostle whose death is recorded in the pages of scripture. Apart from Judas Iscariot, of course, who committed suicide after he betrayed the Lord. Clement of Alexandria wrote about 200 AD. He tells us that A false witness was paid to falsely accuse James. And that when he was brought before trial, James boldly proclaimed the gospel. And the guy who was paid to falsely accuse him repented on the spot, dropped to his knees and gave his life to Christ. And then both of them were beheaded with the sword. You know, there are people who like to get in shape in their mind, but they don't want to hurt doing it. There are all sorts of little exercise gimmicks and little gizmos to help you get in shape, but everybody knows no pain, 
no gain. You want to get in shape fast? Hurt lots. Want to get in shape slow? Hurt a little. Don't want to get in shape? Don't hurt. That's how it is. And there are a lot of Christians who want to be Christians, but they don't want to hurt. They want to be easy. As a matter of fact, it's the new gospel of the age. Christianity is about having it easy, about God giving you what you want, you know, making you prosper, giving you purpose, giving you joy. Not in this life. Not in this life. Don't be confused. I mean, he may do that, and if he does, fine, but it's not to be expected. As a matter of fact, the scriptures teach quite the opposite. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven is great. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what you can expect. There's a good promise. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 verses 16 through 21. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He went on to say, beware of men, for they will deliver you to the courts, scourge you in their synagogues. You shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. He goes on to say, and brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but is the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now there's Christianity. He goes on to say in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A lot of Christians have this wrong. Yes, you are to seek to be at peace. But realize now is wartime. Wartime. He goes on to say, I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life shall lose it. And the one who loses his life for my sake, that person is the one who will find it. And that person only. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says it twice. Jesus said in the upper room in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's what you can expect as a Christian. That's what you can expect. 
Now, if you have ease, if you have prosperity, if you're sitting in a cushy pew this morning, fine. But it may not be that way always here. Things may change. And if they do, don't freak out. It's normal. It's normal. Jesus went on to say in John 16, 2 and 33, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's doing a, a favor for God, offering service to God. He goes on to say, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. Now think about that. Peace? That sounds scary. They're going to kill us. They're going to torture us. They're going to cast us into prison. We're going to be hated. We're going to be estranged from all our closest relationships and our family. Peace? How does that give us peace? Here it is. Because you know it's going to come. You know it's going to come. And you know there's deliverance after death. He goes on to say, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. If Jesus isn't enough, listen to what Paul says. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You must have many tribulations. You don't? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to live godly lives? You're going to be persecuted. It's just the way it is. Satan is controlling the world. Satan is controlling the children of the world. You live a godly life. They hate you for it. They feel convicted by your witness. James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not only is trial and persecution to be expected, it's to be rejoiced in because God uses it for your good. If Paul and James and Jesus are not enough, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not a strange thing. To be persecuted as a Christian, it's a normal thing. It's a strange thing not to. He says, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And if Jesus and Paul and James and Peter aren't enough, John tells us in 1 John three eleven through 13, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, get ready for people to want to slay you because your deeds are righteous. And then he says this, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't marvel at it. Don't go, oh, I'm being persecuted. It's like, yeah, yeah, I already told you. I just, how many verses do you want me to read? More? There's lots more. But we're out of time. The whole point is, is that when you're a Christian, you need to be willing to suffer for Christ. If you don't suffer, praise God. But if you do, don't be surprised. Charles Spurgeon commenting on Matthew 10, 34, where Jesus says, I have not come, uh, 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 I have not come to send peace in the earth, but a sword. He says this, and I'll close with this. The Christian will be sure to make enemies. There will be one of his objects to make none, but if to do the right and if to believe the true should cause him to lose every earthly friend, he will count it but a small loss since his great friend in heaven will be yet more friendly and reveal himself to him more graciously than ever. O ye 
who have taken up his cross, know ye not what your master said? I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Christ is the great peacemaker, but before peace, he brings war. Where the light cometh, the darkness must retire. Where truth is, the lie must flee. Or if it abideth, there must be stern conflict for the truth cannot and will not lower its standard. And the lie must be trodden underfoot. If you follow Christ, you shall have all the dogs of the world yipping at your heels. If you would live as to stand the test of the last tribunal, depend on it. The world will not speak well of you. He who has friendship of the world is an enemy to God. But if you are true and faithful to the most high, men will resent your unflinching fidelity since it is a testimony against their iniquities. Fearless of all consequences, you must do the right. You will need courage of a lion unhesitatingly to pursue a course which shall turn your best friend into your fiercest foe. But for the love of Jesus, you must thus be courageous. For the truth's sake to hazard reputation and affection. It is such a deed that to do it constantly you will need a degree of moral principle which only the Holy Spirit can work in you. Yet turn not your back like a coward but play the man. Follow right manfully in your master's step. For he has traversed this rough way before you. Better a brief warfare and eternal rest than false peace. And everlasting torment, end quote. And that's what we need to learn from James. We learn from Andrew, you need to share Jesus with people, the gospel with people. Bring them to the Lord, lead them to the Lord. We learn from James, you need to be willing to suffer for Christ. It's normal, it's to be expected. Don't be surprised when you live a godly life in a wicked world. They'll hate you for it. They'll hate Christ in you. It's normal. And we need to be willing and ready for it to happen and not complain when it does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're able to look again at two more important characteristics that the the apostles display for us in the pages of Scripture. Father, I just pray that we would all be diligent to share the gospel with the lost like Andrew and James. And that, Father, we would be willing to suffer, suffer death. If necessary, of course, only by your grace. And Father, if we have it easy in this world, may we use that ease not to indulge the flesh, but to share Christ more faithfully with neighbors and friends. And if we don't know how to do that, may we bring them to the church. May we give them good materials. May we go to a class and learn how to do it. So, Father, you can use your truth to bring other people to saving knowledge. Father, to escape the wrath to come, we have the cure. Help us give it away. And if there's anybody here who has never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, may they right now flee from the wrath to come into the arms of Jesus, who is willing to forgive them and wash them whiter than snow if they are willing to place their faith only in him. His life is death. His burial is resurrection to save them. Father, we just pray all these things. We know it's your will. In Christ's name, amen.